Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is episode 56 for August 3rd, 2020's learning. Um, this, how should I start this? It's always tricky when I decide how to start this. I always end up, as you know, ranting off a little, but happy to be back. I hope you're excited for an entire an entire week's worth of new learnings. Um, this is more of a continuation, actually, from the weekend. So over the weekend, I got into this rabbit hole of learning about, or and at the same time, discovering a new investor named James Anderson. At He manages a fund called Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. It's a pretty old fund. I, I forget how long it is. But it's part of a greater investment fund called Bailey Gifford, which... It's based in Edinburgh in Scotland. So Edinburgh is a city north um, in the UK island. And it's, I believe, 112 years old. It's a really old fund. And it was um, set up by two gentlemen with the last name Bailey and Gifford. And the way I was introduced to this... Oh, actually, so before I kind of go into the monologue of storytelling, um, I think... Because I spent kind of the entire weekend going deep into this particular investor uh, named James Anderson. And, you know, what, one of the great things about this podcast is that it actually forces me to try to articulate what I learned. And I think it also forces me to write everything down in the show notes uh, as part of the episode notes. So once again, everything I talk about today will will be in the show notes at omdventures.com so check it out they have all i have all the links there for that should be helpful etc and it's a little inconvenient if you're actually listening on like spotify or um, apple Podcasts for you to actually then open up a browser and go to the site and all that but you know if i guess that's kind of the difference whether you want to invest a little bit of the time to learn a little more of the notes i took and actually find a site that i pulled all the stuff out from um, which is totally up to you but anyhow yeah, so where was I? Lost track of thought. Oh, yeah, so because I spent the entire weekend kind of going through everything he had, not everything, but a good chunk of what he had written, I realized um, on Monday that, well, hmm, what did I really pull out from that? I had bits of information in my head, so I decided maybe I'll take a couple of days to actually revisit everything I read, reread it, and actually pull out the important pieces as a way of, you know, sharing it with you, my audience, but also for me, selfishly, to actually pull out things I can reference back to in the future when I actually want to think about what did I learn from James Anderson and what did he say so yeah today I'm going to talk about the kind of early phase so the early articles I read about James Anderson and kind of the broader scope of how he invests and what I pulled out from that and now this is where I'll go into storytelling so Bailey Gifford as I mentioned is a hundred plus year old investment fund which is pretty rare these days you don't see that many out there and i believe in total they manage north of 100 billion dollars quite a quite a bit of money um 
and compared to my previous one, I used to work at Moore Investments, where they, I believe, are 50 plus years old, and they manage north of 60 billion. So, you know, they were considered they're considered one of the larger ones out there. And so, comparative to comparatively to that, Bailey Gifford is older and manages more money. So, um, not too shabby. They're pretty big, and but they're not really quite well known. I would say outside of people in the investment universe. Um, it might also be because they're based out in Scotland and, you know, how many funds are really famous that come out from Scotland, right? And I'm joking, there's some people for sure that are, um, I think there are a couple, I forget who, but there are a few small fund managers who are pretty well known, I think, from that area. But regardless, um, yeah, so the only reason I knew about Bailey, Gif- Bailey Gifford is because they, are, they were a competitor and I, I heard their name mentioned a few times, but I never really paid much attention to them. And as I started looking at companies that fit more of my interest, once again, companies with unique uh, management teams, unique um, org structures, I noticed that Bailey Gifford kept on popping up multiple times. I think specifically Bailey Gifford popped up uh, in relation to Shopify, Spotify, and Atlassian. So those were three companies I was looking into and I just remember seeing them, their names constantly pop up. And what was weird was because I come from a fund world that is value-oriented. My learnings are more focused on the disciplines of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And the assumption was that Bailey Gifford was a fund not too dissimilar to my previous fund more because, well, you know, we're considered competitors and their name kept them popping up. So I, I imagined, oh, they must be value-oriented too. But why are they, why do their names pop up in all these, you know, quote-unquote, uh, more glamorous tech companies with, you know, high multiples? Like companies that I was looking at now because I had a more of a different, I, I think, a different look at looking at companies where I'm more focused on management and people side. And so that perked my interest, but I didn't really care too much about it until I think I randomly came up an article where a fund manager at Bailey Gifford was saying that investment investors in, on a broad scale kind of missed out on the last decade's worth of opportunities because they were so obsessed with copying Warren Buffett and kind of um, saying that Warren Buffett is kind of responsible for uh, dissuading a group of value investors from not looking at tech companies. So quite a catchy title. And I thought, hmm, you know, who's going to criticize Buffett now? And I didn't care too much about it. But I decided I'll revi- I'll revisit that article, and that's how I ended up getting into this world of who this person James Anderson is. And James Anderson is um, he's a he's currently sixty, I believe, and he's been with Bailey Gifford for I think twenty twenty seven years. So I think for most of his investment career, and he's managed this Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, which I believe is a ten billion dollar fund within Bailey Gifford. And so he's one of the co-managers there. Um, but I think for a long time, he was the main solo manager before um, Tom Slater, I believe, joined him to become the joint manager of the fund. And the article was written by James Anderson. Um, well, the article actually pulled out things that James Anderson had said in the 2020 annual report for the specific fund. So that's where I kind of dug into. So most of what I talk about today is a mix of what came out from the 2020 um, annual report, as well as like a Forbes article article and things I remember from 
watching the few videos that James interviews James Anderson has on YouTube. I think he has about two or three that are of more than 10 minutes in length. And relatively all three talk about very similar messages. Um, he has a very, I think, similar theme throughout. So, And the questions are very I don't know, thematic. So they all kind of talk about his controversial investment in Tesla, for example, um, which I believe Bailey Gibber is a big uh, shareholder of. As I say this, I am going to pull up um, their fund holdings so I can kind of talk about it. So if I, it's always, I think, helpful to look at what does the fund actually hold. And so if I looked at the top 10 names um, of the fund, so their biggest holding is Amazon. Uh, it makes up 9.3% of the fund as of March 31st, 2020. Their second biggest position is Tesla, which is about 8.6% of the fund. And now remember, this is holdings as of March 31st, 2020. Since then, these businesses have ripped up. So keep that in mind. They've done really well through this um, COVID crisis. And the third biggest holding is Tencent at 6%, Alibaba at 6%, Illumina at 6%, ASML at, uh, what is that, 4%, and then Caring at 3%, Netflix at 3%, Delivery Hero at 3%, Ferrari at 2.7%, and Meituan Dianping at 2.5%. I think that's about 10. You get an idea. Um, these stocks, these businesses are really not... Um, all. A lot of them, debatably, some, um, are good, great businesses. Like, for example, Amazon, everyone knows. Tencent, Alibaba, for example. Uh, even Netflix, arguably. Um, I know some other stocks are more battleground companies like Tesla and Netflix. People are still kind of up in arms between those two. And you have the delivery companies like Delivery Hero and Meituan Dianping, uh, which I believe those two are the better companies to own in food delivery services, 100%, at least from my brief look into that world. These two would be the businesses I'd be more interested in compared to the North American counterparts, um, even the uh, Dutch counterpart, Just Eat Takeaway. But without going into the specifics of companies, this just kind of gives you an idea of the kind of holdings they have. What's also fascinating is that um, I think... In various articles and even in the interviews, uh, James Anderson continuously references Phil Fisher as kind of the preeminent growth investor that uh, has written the kind of literature on growth investing. And personally, for me, my favorite investing book of all time is Phil Fisher's book, Uncommon Stocks, was it? Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits. Um, hold on, let me pull it out right beside me. Yeah, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits by Phil Fisher. So this is probably the investment book I've read a lot, uh, the most of. Um, if I don't consider Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is more like a reference book for me that I just continuously flip through uh, periodically. But Phil Fisher's book I've read cover to cover, I believe, three times. Um, and I'll probably read it again for the fourth time soon because I feel there's still so much that I haven't pulled out. Because every time I reread it, I pull out new information and... It's also a way to kind of re-indoctrinate myself into uh, the kind of growth investor thinking of Phil Fisher's. And the reason I also wanted to talk about James Anderson is because what he says just really resonated with me um, immensely. And it also made me really question a lot of my own investment style as well. So instead of kind of making this um, kind of an ep a reflection episode for me, I figured I'll just still try to focus as best as I can um on the facts and kind of the views that james anderson holds so i kind of gave a background on bailey gifford 
Um, but also I want to start by maybe giving a background on um, the fact that, yeah, like just like how as James Anderson talks about the value of Phil Fisher, um, Phil Fisher is very famous for um, emulating, or not emulating, but Warren Buffett actually references a lot of Phil Fisher when I think he said he, when someone asked, he was like 80% Graham and 20% Fisher. Um, Fisher advocates for the no-sell policy that Buffett is very commonly uh, attributed with. And it's always this idea of thinking in long term, decades out, you know, a lot of investors say that, you know, who has ever met an investor that says they're a short term investor, right? But if we look at the holdings that um, Bailey Gifford has had, like out of their top 10 holdings, I believe um, the they've all been in the fund for more than five years. And I believe three have been held for more than 10 years. And I believe Amazon is one of the investments that um, Bail- uh, James Anderson has held for more than 10 years. I think he invested in Alibaba uh, as a private investment in 2012, which also kind of makes this fund pretty unique because it has a big mixture of private and public investments, which I found pr- quite fascinating. And it's this view that James Anderson holds that because public companies and um, private companies become public much later because they don't really need to access external financing so um, quickly in their development because you know costs of starting a company and operating a company are much lower now than before there is there is an opportunity for fund managers to actually tackle the private space and kind of be a multifaceted player where you have both private and public companies so if you actually go through the annual report they actually show you the number of companies that have transitioned from being private into public companies, which I find fascinating. And it's also very fascinating to see the kind of companies that they own that are private. So there are private investors in Ant Financial, there are private investors in Ginkgo Bioworks. Um, what else? Uh, I think I think Spotify was actually a private investment that turned public for them. Um, they are also a investor in TransferWise as well, the famous uh, FX um, company, I believe. Um, what else is uh, there? A private investor in ByteDance. Um, uh, there, there's definitely a number of them. Like if you actually go through, you go, "Wow, I can't believe there." Uh, this old, you know, investment fund in Scotland is an investor in like all these private companies. So once again, like you get a very different feel of this investment fund, where it, it just seems very untraditional, at least from my perspective as coming from the school of value investing. And, you know, holding companies for long term has paid dividends. I believe for Amazon, they earned more, their earn their um, returns is 104 times. Tesla's return was 16 times. Nasper's was 17 times. So, yeah, they, you know, they kind of reap the rewards that way. But I think a different thing is also what something else I think that was quite fascinating is what, um, how, Commonly, growth investors will, or even the modern, quote-unquote, I'm using air fingers, uh, value investors who are looking at compounders, the modern Buffett style, where you invest in companies with wide moats that will constantly reinvest and return high returns on invested capital and grow at blah, 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 20% per year. They will continue to talk about growth at a reasonable price, you know, GARP investing. This is very common knowledge. And a lot of investors who are also kind of, quote unquote, a mix of growth and value will say that they're GARP investors. James Anderson is the only investor I've met or I've read about who says we are a growth at an unreasonable price, which which is fascinating, right? Because it, for me, this kind of 
once again signals someone who is not afraid to look different who um like because uh, inversely like most investors who say that i'm growth and an unreasonable price will be exposed to ridicule will be uh they will have career risk because everyone will say why are you why are you doing that that doesn't make any sense but James Anderson is very open in saying that, yeah, like we look for explosive growth. We are willing to pay really high multiples for companies. And his view is that uh, really the downside of an equity investment is 100% loss. Um, but the true asymmetric payoff structure is that, you know, if you lose, you might lose all of it. But then if you are right, you can make way more than you would lose um, because you can earn more than double, right? You can earn 10x, 100x, etc. if you're right. And that's a big if part. But it's just this unique way of, I think, looking at investments where it's somewhat very akin to what I guess is uh, similar to modern day venture capital, where it's a very optimist approach. And that's what they also continuously reference uh, in their annual report and the other um, interviews as well, that they're optimists and they're growth investors. And they're always looking at optimism first. I believe their even process of pitching investments is that they focus on the bull case. They have to focus on the bull case for at least the first 20 minutes before they even look at the negative case, which is contra- uh, quite contrarian to what most investment shops talk about, where most investment shops talk about how ha- they have uh, the devil's advocate team. They continuously focus on killing investments faster and finding the negative side and being skeptics first. And in one ways, I haven't seen of, I haven't heard of an investment fund that doesn't do that. Most investment shops actually talk about killing ideas faster. And maybe that is a prudent way. But at the same time, if if everyone else is doing it, then maybe you should really think about asking yourself, well, maybe you should think about it differently. Um, I think that's the the Mark Twain quote, where if you ever f- see yourself in the side of the majority, you have to really stop and think. And so I also include in the show notes all these like, quotes that um, James Anderson has, but I won't really read them off verbatim. Um, but the, the key part of the letter that really drew, drew my attention that I should really address is where like James Anderson isn't critical of Buffett for being a bad investor. Um, he doesn't say that at all. He's continuously praises Buffett and Munger as being amazing investors and they're great, etc. So I, I, I don't want to put anything, uh, any negative words in his mouth at all. He doesn't say any of that more. So he's more, uh, the letter actually talks about kind of his observation of how, much of the investing world has actually failed to learn and adapt to this new business environment, this new evolution of this power of the internet, this internet age, and once again, the age of mobile, um, if we want to get even more specific and possibly even to the age of AI, for example, as I think, I think that's kind of how Chamath put it in his own presentation. But he also kind of talks about how in many cases, it could be that investors were kind of misguided because they just, you know, Warren Buffett did so well, and he also is a great teacher of investing principles. And what most people do is that, yeah, they will copy, right? You copy the greats. And that's what many did. They read exactly everything Buffett said you should read. They read all of Buffett's letters, and many do follow exactly what Buffett does um, in terms of his early career as a more of a deeper value investor to his kind of more modern career as more of a um, compounding great business uh, investor. And but Anderson kind of touches upon how in many ways, because, you know, Buffett said, oh, yeah, I don't want to look at technology because it, fast, it changes too quickly. So then you have this entire school of value investors who say, OK, I'm not going to look at technology either. Like I, I was one of them um, when I first learned about value investing back in 
well, I want to say it's either like late 2014, early 2015. Um, I I just had the impression that okay, yeah, like, but if this technology is not so great, it, it changes quickly. I'm not gonna look at it either. So then I wouldn't. I invested in the quote unquote um, the uh, roll up companies. So uh, like restaurant roll up companies, these companies that are very highly acquisitive and they're just kind of growing and compounding revenue rapidly by just buying out other companies and just being filled with debt because debt was cheap and that was still um i would say a wave that you could ride back then because i don't think as many people understood what was happening that all these companies were getting free or not free but really cheap debt and using that to just buy up companies at pretty high valuations but you're constantly tacking on all this revenue growth and you're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the stock market was awarding companies for that so I remember I'd say my early portfolio was a mix of deep value that really didn't work out too well for me and a mix of um, these roll-up compounders which is highly acquisitive and they're just all growing with massive acquisitions. And so in, in one way, it, it just touches upon this kind of irony where, you know, Charlie Munger, especially in his daily journal uh, annual meetings that he hosts um, independently uh, without Buffett, uh, he, he constantly like tells... The people there and other investors that you should you know go where the fish are you know fish where the fish are and the dangers of just emulating what someone else had done in the past because that might not work anymore especially if the environment has changed and he i think in a few of the uh, daily journal meetings he's actually warned investors of um thinking like to not really directly copy what him and warren had done because Although the principles might be applicable uh, in a different setting, directly copying the tactics that they employ might not work in the present environment because we just live in a different time. And so that's why Munger continuously talks about how um, the magic of Buffett, uh, the genius of Buffett, is his ability to continuously learn and adapt. And we see that with his investment style as well. But I think people who tend to emulate Buffett are always a step behind because you're constantly learning from the past actions of this amazing investor. So you're always going to be behind in that way. But if you think about actually just employing the principles that Buffett and Munger continuously focus on, then you might be able to be comfortable in taking a very different investing approach from these two, as long as you kind of embrace the principles that they talk about. So that's kind of what... um, I think the annual letter is kind of getting at. And for me, it was kind of a very big aha moment where it's like, huh, yeah, it's true. Like, it's it's so ironic that, you know, Munger constantly tells people, investors, to not be lemmings. But in many ways, many value investors are kind of like lemmings because we all love the same company <laughs> and we all invested in the same compounding businesses. And what what is the uh, variant perception? There might not be any. Um, so then that kind of made me want to look at investors who are actually being ridiculed by the value investing community. You know, um, I think Kathy Woods of ARK Investments has been one where I, I, for one, am guilty of kind of thinking, well, this seems like a really ridiculous fund. Like you're investing in innovation. What, what does that even mean? And there have been like massive uh, shareholders of Tesla for a very long time. And, you know, lately they've done really well. And whether that's luck or just complete, you know, continuous market exuberance, we time will tell. But it's still a different perspective and i think it's really important to learn and try to understand how other people are approaching the markets and i've been trying to learn more about 
I've always been interested in how macro investors looked at the market just because I can also kind of get an understanding of geopolitics and economics because I'm interested in that field as well, as well as currency investors and commodity investors. Um, and I also did look at a lot of deep value investors too because I'm not a deep value investor at all. I'm not particularly interested in the quantitative aspects of investing, but um, it's different from the modern day Buffett style of you know buying great businesses, for example. But now I think as I've read this James Anderson um, report, it makes me feel more comfortable learning more about the growth side of investing. Like if I think about other fund managers that I really like um, learning about, um, for example, like Terry Smith, for example, I got obsessed with Terry Smith and um, Fundsmith's uh, annual meetings. I think I've watched all the meetings since 2015, I want to say, and practically every YouTube interview I could that Terry Smith has done. And in many aspects, many of um, Terry Smith's uh, investing uh, philosophies and beliefs are somewhat resonant with what James Anderson has here. So I think that's, it's also kind of my evolution, I guess, as an investor. And this is something new. It's, I just never have heard about an investor who looks at investing in this way, where he believes in investing in a company and being completely aware and somewhat comfortable with the fact that, yeah, this company could blow up and it could be a total loser and it could impair capital. But if it goes right, if all these kind of optimistic scenarios pan out, it could be massive. And it's this view that James Anderson continuously touts in his interviews about the fact that there's all these studies. I think there's one in particular he references is like about how I think in, hold on, I, I have the quote here because uh, I don't want to misquote the study. Um, where is it? Where is it? It's about how a small percentage of the stocks uh, businesses in the stock market end up returning the majority of the uh, the excess returns. Um, so this is what he says. Academic work in the past 90 years of U.S. data shows that over half of the excess returns from equities came from just 90 companies. Investors enjoy little, if any, reward for taking the risk of owning the median stock in the market. Instead, it is the outsized impact of a small number of exceptional companies that dominate the payoff structure. And it's these kind of like 5% companies that uh, James Anderson is continuously talking about finding. And one, to do that, you need to have a very long-term perspective because these develop over a very long period of time. But two, it means that you can't really look at companies that are obsessed with you know, um, financial engineering where they're doing the best buybacks, for example, or... Um, you know, paying dividends or having really high free cash flow yield right now, because in many cases, for these companies to achieve that kind of explosive, you know, power law style growth, they need to continuously be reinvesting in sales and marketing in mainly like R&D and technology, for example. So it's a different view um, from what I'm used to. But for me, this is a view that resonates very highly with my own evolution, because I think I've might have mentioned this before in past podcasts, but also in my own writings where I've been trying to change my holding style to include this long tail of um, possible kind of, I don't know, blowout businesses I could just do extremely well. But the big thesis that I just find the management very fascinating and weird. And if something amazing is going to come out um, of business, I think they require weird and fascinating managers specifically founders. Um, I don't think traditional, very cookie cutter type founders can achieve um, 
crazy, you know, crazy. Like they, they, I, I just don't th- see many really crazy, like creating industry changing businesses. Uh, I think you need to be really weird <laughs> and very untraditional. And it's like the limits test is like you just can't be. Um, like I don't think I'm the kind of person that can create these kinds of industry changing companies. Like I, I've met a number of entrepreneurs, and who knows, maybe one of them uh, will be able to be this game changing entrepreneur. But the continuous overall feeling feeling I've had speaking to so many entrepreneurs is that, wow, these people are special. Like they have a different kind of mindset than I do. Like I'd be happy running a small kind of media enterprise of my own, but to create m- like multi billion dollar company, I think it requires takes a very special person to lead and like start and lead it and so it's about finding those people and to do that you have to make a lot of mistakes and a risk aversion uh approach where you're very focused on the downside all the time might not be the best way like um james james anderson talks about the margin of potential upside versus the margin of safety which is very different right every like who dares question uh, the margin of safety concept that Seth Klarman continuously focuses on, right? He even wrote the book called Margin of Safety. And to have an investor say that, no, I don't, fo- I, I focus more on the margin of potential upside. Like that's fascinating. I think that really excited me. And that's why I ended up, I wanted to kind of go deeper into this particular investor. So this is more like the first part. Um, I'll probably do a second part where he actually has, uh, so James Anderson wrote this entire kind of five-part essay series on the battle of growth versus uh, deep value. So I read all of it, but once again, as I think back and I'm like, hmm, what did I actually pull out from it? I think I definitely need to sit down and really take more notes and think clearly about it. So I hope to dedicate a second podcast to that. So definitely stay tuned for it if you're interested. But yeah, this was my kind of first big discovery of a growth investor that I really resonated strongly with and hope this was interesting for you. Hope this was fun. I hope I didn't bore you too much with my own opinions and tidbits. If you like more of that, let me know. Um, the best way to give me feedback is to email me. Um, you can do that by contacting me on the OMD Ventures page. There's a contact page somewhere. Um, you can find it. And yeah, so once again, thanks for tuning in. And yeah, hope this was valuable and interesting and hope to have you back on as a listener tomorrow. Take care.